0: Turn at this time in the New Testament to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, and we'll begin reading at verse 35 and continue to the end of the chapter. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then complained about him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I That I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have come, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Turn also in our book of Forms and Prayers to Article 14, The Creation and Fall of Man. We believe that God created man from the dust of the earth and made and formed him in his image and likeness, good, just, and holy, able by his own will to conform in all things to the will of God. But when he was in honor, he did not understand it and did not recognize his excellence, but he subjected himself willingly to sin and consequently to death and the curse, lending his ear to the word of the devil. For he transgressed the commandment of life, which he had received, and by his sin he separated himself from God, who was his true life, having corrupted his entire nature. So he made himself guilty and subject to physical and spiritual death, having become wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all his ways. He lost all his excellent gifts, which he had received from God, and he retained none of them except for small traces, which are enough to make him inexcusable. Moreover, all the light in us is turned to darkness, as the scripture teaches us. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not receive it. Here John calls men darkness. Therefore we reject everything taught to the contrary concerning man's free will. Since man is nothing but a slave of sin, and cannot do a thing, unless it is given him from heaven. For who can boast of being able to do anything good by himself, since Christ says, No one can come to me unless my Father who sent me draws him? Who can glory in his own will, when he understands that the mind of the flesh is enmity against God? Who can speak of his own knowledge, in view of the fact that the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God? In short, who can produce a single thought, since he knows that we are not able to think a thing about ourselves by ourselves, but that our ability is from God. And therefore what the apostle says ought rightly to stand fixed and firm. God works within us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. For there is no understanding nor will conforming to God's understanding and will apart from Christ's work, as he teaches us when he says, Without me, you can do nothing. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And uh, Jesus is not saying here that there are those who are righteous and thus need no repentance but he is emphasizing the fact that, indeed, his mission is a saving mission for sinners. And uh, so long as people do not acknowledge their sin or their need for such salvation, in a sense they disqualify themselves from that salvation, as the Pharisees did, who uh, objected to the fact that Jesus received sinners, when in, th- in fact that was his whole mission. But that also means that uh, the knowledge of our, of our need Uh, The knowledge of our guilt, our need for spiritual healing from the true heavenly physician is uh, necessary uh, before we would come to him for such saving grace and mercy. We also must understand then that uh, guilt and... uh, and the, the the awareness of sin is not simply a, a psychological phenomenon, it's not a, a state of mind or or a feeling, but it is the reality, it's the fact of our natural condition since the fall of man into sin. And uh without without the conviction, the awareness of that fact, there is no true knowledge of ourselves. And uh, a true knowledge of ourselves always coincides with a knowledge of salvation. In fact, we must even go further and to say that a shallow uh, conviction, a shallow sense of the evil of sin uh, spells a shallow kind of Christianity. And much of the lack of seriousness or urgency uh, about the Christian life and calling today is due to slight views of sin. And yes, of course, we know that Christians are to be joyful. But in a way, that's very much to the point. Because while Christians may be joyful about a lot of things, the true joy in the Lord, a joy in the wonder of our salvation, requires some grasp of the magnitude of God's grace and mercy to us. Those who are forgiven much love much. Those who know that they have been saved from a great evil are very thankful for such salvation and uh, learn to rejoice in that more and more. Now, it's obvious, isn't it, that the uh, Belgian Confession Article 14 is uh, a rather heavy article. It is, it is dark, you might say, in its depiction of human nature and the, the desperate condition of fallen man in his sin. And we're going to repeat some of those phrases of this confession that really emphasize that. But heavy as it is, it is the truth of God's word. In fact, you may have noticed that there are a lot of quotations of the Bible in Article 14. Many of these statements are actual quotations from different passages of Scripture. And you can see that in in the, the textual references in the footnotes of this article. It's the truth of God. And it's necessary to know and to feel something of this truth in order to see the wonder of our salvation, which is found only in God, only in his grace in Christ. And so we look at this uh, uh, teaching concerning man's corruption because of the fall. And uh, we note that man corrupted his entire nature by the fall. That's really the emphasis of this article, the the totality of uh, the effects upon our nature because of sin. And we begin by considering uh, man's willful loss. This article talks about what man uh, lost by the fall. A terrible loss occurred by the first sin, by the entrance of sin to this world upon the whole human race. And that means we must never normalize our sin and brokenness. You know, sometimes we use the word normal to simply describe what is uh common, what is usual, what is typical. And in that sense, we might say, well, yes, sin is normal for people. In fact, it's universal. There are no exceptions. But that doesn't mean that Sin is normal to being human, as if that's simply the way people are. They are flawed. They are imperfect. No, that's the way fallen and depraved people are, because of what happened to our human nature. In other words, sin is by no means an essential part of being human. And in that sense, it is not normal. The saints will remain human for all eternity without sin. And then it will be known what a horrible aberration it was that our humanity should have been ravaged by sin. When we discover in the life to come what it means to be truly human in a way that we have never grasped before. What it means to be in the image of God without any vestiges and remnants of the effects of sin upon our human nature. So we must not normalize sin as simply, well, that's just what it is to be human. In the book of uh, Romans, we read of homosexuality as that which is against nature. It's certainly against the law of God, but it's described also as being against nature. That means that it's against the created order. And that's one of the reasons, among others, why homosexuality should never be normalized. We should never get used to it. We should never get, we should never accept it as, well, that's just the way some poor people are. We recognize indeed that the very inclination and tendency towards every kind of aberration from God's original, original creation of man in his likeness takes many perverse forms. And we do not look with a sense of superiority. And we do not look with a judgmentalism that would betray a kind of pride towards those who indeed are inclined particularly to this specific form of the corruption and perversion of our nature. There's a great variety. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. But we should never look upon such sins without Without judgment. And again, I don't mean without uh, a harsh judgment and condemnation of the persons, but without a moral judgment that this is wrong, it is disordered, it is contrary to the goodness of the way in which God created man in His image. In fact, we should look at all sin in that way. Because God created man upright, good, and holy. And homosexuality, in fact, is just one of the many uh, manifestations of our corrupt nature. It's mentioned, indeed, in Romans chapter 1, but Romans chapter 1 by no means stops there. It says, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Which one of us is exempt from such a description of our fallen sinful nature? Our entire humanity has been ravaged by sin. And here's a list of the manifestation of that. God has man made man upright, Ecclesiastes seven, but they have sought out many schemes. So man's present condition then is due to a terrible loss. And our confession enumerates what has been lost uh, by by the fall. We've lost the image of God in which we are created, as good, uh, just, and holy. The canons of Dort in its third. Uh, chapter also speaks of this in uh, the third article of that uh, chapter where it says, "Uh, "...therefore all people are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to all evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin." Without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God to reform their distorted nature or even to dispose themselves to such reform. The image of God described in Scripture in terms of true knowledge righteousness and holiness has been ravaged and and lost by the fall. Well that doesn't mean there are no remnants of the the image of god upon our humanity but in terms of its its moral manifestations as described by scripture that has been lost. And with it we've lost life with god. Our confession again speaks of this when it says that he separated himself from god who is his life. We're created uh, to rightly know God and to to love Him and to live with Him. Remember the Heidelberg Catechism statement on this, as it describes the image of God. We're created to to live with Him in eternal blessedness, to praise and glorify Him. To live apart from God is death. God is our life, our true life. Fellowship with God is lost. Because of our sin, your sins have separated you from your God, right? That's what we heard from Isaiah uh, chapter 59. Likewise, the loss of eternal life. He transgressed the commandment of life which he had received. and It's referring there to uh, God's commandment uh, affixed to the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that man was to abstain from. There is also a tree of life. And man was forbidden access to the tree of life as a result of sin. And uh, the commandment of life here, that language also suggests that by his obedience, Adam would have been confirmed in a state of life and righteousness and likely elevated to a, to a higher, more perfected enjoyment of that eternal life. But eternal life has been lost by the Fall, and instead, man became subject to physical death and spiritual death and eternal death and This is man's willful loss it's not simply some kind of a tragedy that uh, has overtaken man it's described in scripture in terms of disobedience. It was by rebellion that Adam chose to go contrary uh, to the Word of God that doesn't mean that Adam. Uh, consciously chose all the consequences of sin, right? And that's true of us as well. When we choose to sin, it's not like we are consciously, deliberately choosing all the consequences of sin. Are we really choosing enslavement to that habit that we begin to enjoy increasingly, making an idol of it and suffering its effects upon our bodies and upon our minds? Do we really choose to destroy our health? Do we really choose to destroy relationships by our sin? No, not intentionally, not deliberately, but we choose the kinds of things that lead to all these terrible consequences. And so Adam was, was blinded. He ignored the threat of death. And he simply thought sought what he imagined selfishly to be advantageous to himself in the moment. And so he faced all these dreadful consequences of sin, but that was a willful loss then. And this willfulness is our willfulness, because we repeat it. We do the same kind of thing. Adam's loss is our loss. His misery, his guilt, is our misery and guilt. And you will notice that, even if you uh, pay careful attention to to the language of of this article. It describes man in such a way that, that so obviously and clearly refers to that that first act of disobedience, the initial entrance of sin into this world through that first man, Adam. But the way it describes it and the way it describes its effects, it's like it it gets bigger and bigger. And uh, our confession quotes from different passages of Scripture to make abundantly clear that this is not simply descriptive of Adam at all. And it's not simply descriptive of the consequences that he personally suffered because of his disobedience. But it's a description of our fallen nature as those who are so joined to Adam that in his fall we sinned all and we all partake of the guilt of that sin and all suffer the consequences of that sin. There's even a transition which is explicit. You know, throughout it, it speaks of man. He he lost these excellent gifts. And then it says, moreover, all the light in us, suddenly it's talking about us. All the light in us is turned to darkness, as the scripture teaches us. And so it's clear that this description of the entrance of sin through Adam is the description of what we did in Adam and the consequences that have come to us. The corruption of man's nature is our corruption. And it's a corruption from our conception right isn't that what what the psalmist confesses that he was conceived and born in sin secondly our confession speaks of the totality of this corruption often referred to theologically as total depravity total depravity and that language is not to deny some outward uh, decency that remains to many and again, the, the canons of Dort are, are helpful in this connection. In in uh, in chapter 3, uh, the, the fourth article, it says, There is to be sure a certain light of nature remaining in man after the fall, by virtue of which he retains some notions about God, natural things, and the difference between what is moral and immoral, and demonstrates a certain eagerness for virtue and for good outward behavior. In other words, total depravity doesn't mean that all people are absolutely as wicked as they most uh, as as they possibly could be. Well, there are other influences that restrain that wickedness, and people do show an interest in certain kind of virtues, and they they value them to a certain extent. Article fifteen uh, speaks uh, speaks of that as well. He retains none of these gifts except for small traces. But then it speaks also of the consequence of that which are enough to make him inexcusable. But we do not deny that there is some outward decency to man. But the point that we need to understand from, uh, from our confession is that such things do not, they do not enable people uh, to please God. They that are in the flesh cannot please God without the renovation of their nature in a fundamental way through the work of the Holy Spirit, they cannot please God. Because even when they do what is right outwardly, their motives are not right. They do not do so in faith. They do not do so humbly relying upon the Lord Jesus Christ and God's mercy. Characteristically, they take pride in their goodness. and, In fact, they're rather confident that they are good enough to go to heaven. They're not able to please God. They're not able to find their way back to God. There's none who seeks after God. No, not one. They're not able to choose to cooperate with God's grace by any good use of those uh, remaining gifts and abilities. In fact, the language of our confession here is that all the light in us has turned uh, to darkness. In fact, the second part of that fourth article, the Belgic Confession, Uh, says more about this, where it says, But this light of nature is far from enabling man to come to a saving knowledge of God and conversion to him, so far, in fact, that man does not use it rightly, even in matters of nature and society. Instead, in various ways, he completely distorts this light, whatever its precise character, and suppresses it in unrighteousness. In doing so, he renders himself without excuse, before God. Man has lost those gifts. We might say that that man has lost his mind as far as any inability to understand spiritual things and with a right understanding take one step toward God. Who can speak of his own knowledge in view of the fact that the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God? It's one of those quotations of Scripture from Second Corinthians chapter three, Ephesians chapter four, verse eighteen describes uh, fallen sinful men as having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. There it joins together uh, uh, ignorance, a lack of knowledge that is inseparably, uh, inseparably related to the condition of their heart. Who can produce a single thought, our confession goes on to say, since he knows that we are not able to think a thing about ourselves, but that our ability is from God. That's an interesting uh, quotation, by the way, because it makes clear that this is true in terms of this natural inability to understand and to think properly. It's, It's not only true of those who do not have the word of God, but it's true of those who have the word of God. In fact, it's even true of Christians. In other words, every good thought... Every thought that is true and honoring to God is a result of his grace at work in us. And that ought to be very encouraging and very comforting. Because if we do know and love God and we want to serve and worship him truly, well, where does that come from? It's not of ourselves. There's also the corruption of the will. And that's another focus of this confession and an important part of understanding total depravity. Totally pravity means that every part of man has been ravaged. It's been devastated by his sin. The way we think, you might say the way we feel, our affections, the things we love and the things we hate, our hearts have been corrupted, but also our wills. And this teaching has special importance when it comes to the will. Our confession also asks, who can glory in his own will? Well, it seems like Everybody glories in their, whole, in their own will. We have the right to choose. We have the ability to choose. Man has free will. And people sometimes talk about their right and their ability to choose as if it's almost unlimited. You can choose to be or do whatever you want as if there are no limitations to the exercise of this freedom. And indeed, let us say positively and thankfully, that we do enjoy tremendous freedoms of choice from day to day, in terms of how we order our days, in terms of the kind of food we eat, the kind of recreations we enjoy, the kinds of relationships we pursue, the kinds of work we do, and on and on and on. And we are grateful to live in a country where so many freedoms are protected by law, and we treasure them. We treasure the many choices that we're able to make from day to day and recognize that, yes, the exercise of our wills and choices is a significant part of what it means to be human and is a great privilege to have many options from which to choose. But there is also a kind of freedom, if we may use that word, to sin. In other words, we are not hindered from sinning by some kind of physical coercion. We're not stopped. People are not stopped as they exercise their freedom of choice. And they exercise that freedom of choice in terms of how they identify themselves. They exercise that freedom of choice with respect to their sexuality and their practices and their enjoyments and their pleasures and their pursuits. The freedom of choice to abort their unborn children. And yes, they're exercising their own choice indeed. They're exercising their own will. And whether it's legal or not would not be a factor in the exercise of their will for many people concerning a whole variety of things. We might say that people by and large do what they want. They do what they will. And we acknowledge all that and yet we confess that there is no, there is no will conforming to God's will apart from Christ's work. There is no choice that is pleasing to God and an agreement with His will without a miracle, we might put it. And it's that very consideration that really emphasizes our, our our third point concerning man's absolute inability. Man is nothing but a slave of sin. That's one of those rather stark statements of this this article. Man is nothing but a slave of sin. What a devastating description. He is unable to understand. He is unable to choose. He's unable to work or do anything to save himself. The language of our confession is that he cannot do anything unless it is given him from heaven. You cannot do a thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Now it's referring there particularly to matters of salvation. But this is the context in which also this article deals with this question of free will. We reject anything taught to the contrary of this doctrine concerning man's free will. We don't deny that there is a a sense in which... uh, have. People exercise a free will in the sense that, yes, they make choices and they do so freely. They're free agents. But we deny that that theological teaching about free will that says, well, man, man is able to choose or not to choose with respect to salvation so that those who are saved are saved because of their exercise of free will. And that's what determines the difference between those who are lost and saved. Some exercise their free will wisely and rightly to believe in Jesus, and others don't. And you understand what that does. It makes salvation entirely hinge upon man's will. And you might say, from a good will. Then you have to ask the question, well, where does that come from? How do we square that with the teaching of Scripture? And you can't. In John chapter 6, verse 44, we read the words of our Lord where he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In the opening chapter of this book, we uh, read of the world's response to the light that has come into the world and uh, its response to the coming of Christ where it says, He came into his own and his own received him not. But to as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become the sons of God, who believed in his name, who were born not of the will of man, not of the will of the flesh, but of God. It's not their will that made the difference. It was God's will. Now, again, this does not mean that man cannot make choices. He does, all the time. You might say he makes choices uh, according to his pleasure he does what he pleases but in a sense can't we also say that apart from christ isn't that man's misery because he always chooses according to his whole value system he chooses according to the way he thinks the kind of judgments that he makes about what's good and what's bad what's pleasurable what's not he chooses according to his heart the kinds of things he loves He chooses according to what he wants. But because of who he is, deeply, internally, from the heart, he will never choose to repent. He will never choose to trust in Christ. He will never choose to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Jesus. He will never choose to be a follower of the Lord. It's only a miracle of grace that brings about those kinds of choices and this miracle is described in different ways in John chapter 6 i already already referred to verse 44 where jesus said no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him draws him again that's a word that that might be understood uh in the sense of a kind of uh mild uh invitation or a, a kind of uh come here but that's not what the word means. The word draw there, it's actually a word that's used to describe what fishermen did when they haul their nets to shore. They don't say, come on, come on to shore, their net full of little fishies. No, they grab it and they, they, they draw it onto the, onto the bank. And so this is a word that speaks of an internal power at work. God working in the hearts, drawing people to Him effectively. This passage talks also about About uh, teaching. In the next verse, it says, It shall be written, they shall all be taught of God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. In other words, everyone whom the Father teaches, really teaches, they're going to come to Christ. In verse 65, it's spoken of as a gift of God. Therefore, I said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted given to him by my Father. Verse 63 teaches us that it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Remember when Nicodemus, when when Jesus told Nicodemus that you must be born again? He says, that which is flesh is flesh. In other words, the, the, the sinful human nature cannot break outside the limitations of its depravity. All we get from our parents is a fallen, depraved human nature. And you can educate it, you can train it, you can teach it a lot of things, but you cannot impart spiritual life. That's the work of God and the work of God only. You must be born again. The flesh profits nothing. It is the Spirit who gives life. And we're given to see, likewise, that the Spirit works through the Word. My words are Spirit and they are life. And when they're recognized and received as that, Well, that shows the work of the Holy Spirit opening up our minds and hearts to the truth. Apart from that, we are unable. We also need to understand that this inability is not to be attributed to God. And, And what I mean by that is that we must never imagine that someone may truly want to be saved by Christ, but is somehow hindered by God. As if God says, oh, no, 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 not you. The very desire to be saved. And here I'm using salvation in a biblical sense. You know, there are people who may desire momentarily to do something to escape judgment. And see, that's the great danger of uh, the practice of a uh, demand for immediate decisions expressed by some physical movement, coming forward like an altar call, raising your hand, okay, oh, you're saved, you, you've made the decision, now you're saved. People could be motivated by a lot of reasons to profess a a kind of conversion. Maybe simply the desire to escape judgment. And people may desire that. That's not necessarily a desire to be saved from sin. That's not necessarily a desire to belong to Christ. But whoever truly desires salvation, that desire itself comes from God. When God says, seek my face, and your heart says, your face, Lord, I will seek. That's his saving grace at work. God works in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. That is true in the matter of conversion. It's true with regard throughout the Christian life. And that also means that the doctrine of total inability must not be misused as an excuse for unbelief or inaction in response to the gospel. The Bible never teaches, uh, sinners to just wait. The Bible never says, well, it's God's work. There's nothing you can do, so hopefully it'll happen to you. Maybe you're elect, maybe not. Nothing you can do. The Bible never applies this teaching in such a way. But what we have constantly through Scripture is a summons to believe, a command to believe. Even in this passage where we have these very, very sobering statements about the necessity of God's work, we have these promises that whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life. The proclamation of the gospel is not restricted in its presentation. It calls and commands all who hear to come to believe. And it ought to leave no question that for those who refuse and who fail to come and believe, the fault lies entirely with them. God's command to believe is to be joyfully impaired. Obeyed. It's not to be countered with theological arguments. It seems like that's what the Jews were doing. They were raising all kinds of objections and criticisms of Jesus. You know, there's this account of Jesus healing the man with a withered hand, and uh he commanded him, "Stretch out your hand." Now, this man didn't reason with him. He says, "Yes, Lord. See, that's that's the very problem. I, I can't do that." That's not how we're to respond to the the command of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus. No, no, I, I can't do that. We're not to concern ourselves with our inability as an excuse or a hindrance to obeying God's summons to faith. And those who hear and those who come to Christ are a promise that he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. No sinner has ever come before the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, I'm confused. Lord, my, my sins are so great. I have all kinds of objections and fears. But I want you to say, be, be merciful to me on your terms. Be gracious to me. And to come to the Lord Jesus Christ in that way will never meet with us some kind of a repulse. Rather, this teaching, brothers and sisters, of our confession leads us to give God the glory for our salvation and to to know, as the hymn says, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. It was not I who found, O Savior, true. I was found of Thee. And again, we ought not to misunderstand my uh, explanation of the word draw. It's not that sinners who are being drawn to Christ are aware of God's activity, I mean, sometimes that actually happens, but usually sinners being drawn to Christ are just aware of their need, their sin, and they've come to believe that Christ indeed is a savior. And what they are aware of are their fears and their feelings and their desires and their longings, and they cry to the Lord. And then in hindsight, they interpret their experience in the light of God's word, in light of God's work, and see that He was the one who was drawing them. Though they didn't know it at the time. But we know that. And let that lead us also to give God all the praise and all the glory. And if we don't know that, if we're uncertain, or if our hearts, our conscience, raise all kinds of fears and objections, today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Amen.